the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to a full program of the Country Hour due to rain at the cricket at the SCG. Well, uh, coming up today, have you seen the new lamb ad yet this year? The annual campaign funded by Meat and Livestock Australia's producer levy shows ordinary people being disappeared to a desert wasteland for any offences that are deemed un-Australian. What are you here for? Tried to eat a meat pie with these. Don't know the words to K-San. Charged him a dollar for tomato sauce. <coughs> what is this? Where am I? Lamb. <coughs> How's that un-Australian? All I said was, bon appetit! Lamb doesn't get any better than this. There you go. Un-Australian to uh, not eat lamb. That's uh, that's what they're trying to say there. <laughs> what do you think about that ad? You might have some thoughts about Funded, of course, by Meat and Livestock Australia producer Levy, so you might have some views on that, uh, being producers out there listening to the country hour. 0467 is the number to text us here at the country hour. But first up today uh, to some other news. We'll hear about the lamb ad shortly, but uh, some other news. A wind turbine near Goulburn in New South Wales caught fire early on Thursday morning. The cause of the fire is still to be determined but about 20 firefighters were called to the property, which is in a farming area. The National Wind Farm Commissioner, Andrew Dyer, told David Clawton that there was no risk of the fire spreading to surrounding properties and wind towers are generally very low risk, but there have been a few instances of fires in the past. I'm aware of three other fire events over a long period of time where the fires um, started in the turbine generation area. Now, we don't know yet whether the fire started in the what's called the nacelle, which is the, the generator factory, if you like, behind the, the, the blades or uh, at, in the blade due to a, a lightning strike or some other uh, event. There, there is a history of lightning strikes. Is, it, is that how other fires have started? Uh, no. Um, lightning strikes in typically pierce a hole in the end of the blade, and which creates a, an annoying whistling sound, but it is not uh, more destructive than that, but the, the modern-day blade is a much longer blade than the blades you'll find at um, Cullen, for example, and the new materials that are used in the long blades to strengthen the blade can be uh, conductive, and we've had two cases that I'm aware of where the lightning has struck the tip of the blade, run down the blade due to the conductivity of the material, and then severed the blade near the hub. Right, so a large blade would come crashing down, yeah? It's caused, it's caused a, a, a serious safety event with a, a blade flying off from, from the hub. So does it go a distance or just fall on the concrete pad? Oh, they fall pretty quickly, but they can, depending on the circumstances, the wind and a whole range of things, they can be 50 metres or more away from the, the turbine. And those past events have also triggered a fire in the unit itself, is that right, in the motor? No, but it has triggered um, you know, creative actions and the manufacturers to re-look at how they design the strength of the blades or strength of the blades through the lightning arrestor system that is deployed on, on turbines. So what's caused these other fire events, as far as you know? Oh, the cell area is essentially a, the electricity generation engine of the, uh, of the turbine, and things can happen. So uh, 
Fortunately, a few years ago, industry adopted installing suppression systems to suppress fires, a bit like the, the sprinkler system you might find in a, in a building uh, or the equivalent thereof. And that's had a huge impact on reducing uh, fires that might start due to oil or some chemical reaction in, inside the nacelle. Right, but this is an older unit, so it didn't have a, su- a suppression system. No, no. And so are you concerned about, the, about that, the older units, or do you think that the measures in place with the concrete pad and the RFS attending, for example, there's, there's no risk? Uh, I think it's very important if you've got older fleet that does not have a suppression system that you really need to be on top of your maintenance regimes for the, uh, for the, the equipment in the nacelle to make sure there's no leaks of fluid or any flammable materials that could cause a, a fire. So the RFS has handed the investigation back to EDL Energy, the owner of the uh, of the wind tower. Uh, do you have any concerns about that company and, and the way they've been operating? No. In, in fact, the investigation will be carried out by Vestas, who in fact maintain and operate the uh, the turbines for and on behalf of EDL. So they've got a, a worldwide database, obviously, of, of experience of getting to root cause. It's, it's in everyone's best interest to get to the root cause and, and define the corrective actions and be transparent about the whole process. And are there people in Australia that uh, investigate these types of things? Would it be important, do you think, to get an independent expert to have a look at it? Uh, I think if the results are not conclusive or we had concerns about the um, the way the analysis was done, we, we could always reserve the right to bring in a third-party expert. And what about the impact on the turbine network if it's shut down for a period? Does it, in, it has impact on the supply at all? Well, again, the, the wind farm was quite responsible by shutting down the whole wind farm at the uh, the discovery of the fire. Um, they've, as I understand it, they've now been able to isolate that turbine, which is, I think, turbine number 15, and the other 14 can uh, be re-energised today. And so you would be, you'd be reassuring people in that area or anybody that's you know near to a wind tower that you know there's very low risk is that accurate yes i i would uh, strongly urge people not to uh, overact and uh, just get on with their their day-to-day work and um, our website has a lot of resources that provides information about what i've talked about this morning and that's at www.aeic.gov.au landholders do have concerns, I'd encourage them to read the resources available on, on our website to get them up to speed with the, the latest on bushfires and wind farms. That's Wind Farm Commissioner Andrew Dyer speaking there to David Clawton. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour because it's raining in the cricket, uh, so we're doing a full hour on the Country Hour today. And it's uh, coming up to 12 minutes past 12. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. The floods moving through Australia's inland areas have been inundating vineyards in three states. That's decimated some crops and fences and irrigation equipment have been damaged, which uh, will probably affect the size of the next vintage here in Australia. Lee McLean is the CEO of the Australian Grape and Wine and he told David Clawton that it's been a very difficult period for growers. Well, there's, there's no doubt that the 2023 vintage is throwing a hell of a lot at a number of different growing regions across the country. Uh, and that has certainly been felt in New South Wales, Victoria and now South Australia. The good news is that 
for a lot of those grape growers out there who have experienced flooding, this isn't the case across all vineyards, but in a, in a, a lot of vineyards, is that when the floodwaters uh, come into the vineyard, if they sit there for a period and then the, the floodwaters recede, the, the vines are usually okay, but there is always some impact on things like trellising and posts and irrigation infrastructure uh, and in the vine's ability to produce fruit in the 2023 vintage as well in some instances. And are there large numbers of vineyards that are in those sort of floodplain areas or, or you know, in areas that generally are affected by flooding? There are. So Australia's three sort of major producing areas are, are all inland irrigated regions. So areas like the Riverina in New South Wales, the Murray Valley in Victoria, uh, and the Riverland in South Australia. And all of those have experienced either flooding or very wet conditions over the last couple of months. But the other big issue for a number of them, and I know this is particularly evident in places like the Riverina, is that there's been pretty significant disease pressure in some of those regions. And, and part of that is due to the fact that, A, it's been wet, but B, it's been so wet that you can't get your machinery, your tractors and sprayers and the like in to, to actually mitigate the worst of it. So we were hearing reports out of Victoria of, um, you know, floods affecting Rutherglen and Barossa Valley in the Gamby Lakes region. A couple of vineyards had barrels of wine float away. Did you hear about that? Yeah, there was, there's, been, there's been a couple of reports of, of damage in certain, certain businesses uh, of, of significant crop losses and significant losses of, of products, which is always really challenging and, and, uh, and difficult to deal with, obviously. Uh, thankfully, those sorts of uh, reports have been limited. So some people saying might have lost 75% of their crop, but have you had a chance to assess overall how it might affect production from Australian vineyards this year? Look, I think there's no doubt that production overall will be down, but it's too early to tell uh, what that disease and flooding impact is going to be from a national level but i'm tipping a, a below average sized vintage for uh, 2023 what about dealing with these problems like danny mildrew or just getting on to the vineyards in order to do the, the work and spray the chemicals or, or whatever's required yeah it's really really challenging uh so a number of regions say the hunter valley for example and a couple of others have resorted to things like aerial spraying now that obviously doesn't work in in every instance but it has provided some alleviation of the worst of the the effects of some of those disease pressures in regions like that it really depends on what kind of vineyard you're operating if you are a, a small vineyard that is operating primarily uh by hand uh your hand pruning your hand um, spraying and all that sort of thing uh you can generally do your best to manage it if you're working in a, a vineyard that is uh larger that is generally um dealing with machinery uh, that is much more challenging to to work through are you hearing that people are having to close their doors is it affecting the cellar door trade i think in parts but generally speaking with the riverland in particular there's been actually a real push to make sure people are actually traveling up to the riverland because a lot of that area was still absolutely available to, to tourism and open for business but there was a perception out there that due to the floodwaters people weren't able to make their way out to see um, to see those wineries and, and cellar doors. There has been some damage to cellar doors in certain regions uh, across the country, uh, which has been very challenging for those businesses, of course, but most of the time when there has been flooding, uh, you know, our businesses are pretty, pretty adaptable and resilient. They can get themselves up on their feet after a bit of a clean-up and, and open their doors pretty soon. Now, winemakers, generally speaking, don't like to talk about 
poor quality wine, but what do you think it would do, these kind of conditions in a season like this, on the quality of the wine for the coming vintage? Well, I mean, one of the beauties about, about wine is that, you know, if you're working on a on a single vineyard, you will have variation through from year to year uh, and there'll be different sorts of conditions uh, and that's going to that's going to shine through in the wine uh, from year to year. I, I think overall, what we'll what we'll likely see is that where there has been disease pressure uh, in some of those areas, uh, you know, you will see some um, selection of the the best grapes that are available. So we may see a smaller vintage, but we'll see a, we'll see a high quality vintage nonetheless because people will be able to be a little bit more selective in what they're putting into the bottle. I suppose the silver lining in this too is is maybe twofold because. There has been an oversupply of wine in recent years. And the other thing is if there's, if there's a lot of water around, that, that bodes well for future uh, vintages, doesn't it, for growers? Well, the, the oversupply situation is, is interesting. And, of course, we are in the midst of a, a really significant oversupply situation, and that's directly attributable to what has happened with China imposing those trade uh, restrictions on, on Australian wine. Uh, so, um, in some certain, in some ways, uh, a smaller vintage is not necessarily a bad thing for the Australian sector at the moment. Uh, but it is too early to say uh, at this point in time exactly what that's going to be looking like, because the the oversupply that we have in Australia is primarily a, a red wine oversupply as opposed to a white wine oversupply, because the vast majority of what we were sending to China was red wine. So. I think uh, over the next little while, once some figures start coming in, we'll get a much better picture of that. Lee McLean is the CEO of Australian Grape and Wine. Now, the South Australian and federal governments have announced some support for farmers affected by the floods, and Australian Grape and Wine are encouraging grape growers and winemakers to check on their resources uh, on their website for information on how to handle the wet conditions in the vines. It's 19 past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, Australia Day is not far away and one woman who's been nominated for a Community Leader Award is Esperance farmer Sam Stasevich. Sam is well known in New South Wales for helping to coordinate hay runs to drought-affected farmers a couple of years ago, sending or coordinating and sending thousands of much-needed bales right across the country to those in desperate need of help and of feed. She says she was surprised to know she's been nominated and says she helps out in the good times because she knows, as a farmer, what it's like to struggle with drought. Yeah, no, we've done a, done a few over to New South Wales. Um, so I think we're coming up to, well, it's 10 years since we did our first one. So it's, um, yeah, it's been a long time and it's good to see, well, I mean, things are underwater at the moment, aren't they? But it's, um, yeah, it's been a great experience. I mean, some people would need hay now because of the floods and before then it yeah. was the drought. It was the drought, yes. And we have looked into whether we can come over and, and help with the floods, so um, yeah, that's still on the cards. We won't say no. Absolutely, yeah, that's right. Definitely needed. You must have seen some horrific scenes in your time, though, travelling around. Oh, look, we have, and it's been um, we've we've made some fantastic friends, but we've travelled all over Australia. The last few years, we have sort of been based more in WA, um, but it's uh, it makes takes a team. It's definitely a team effort. So I, you know, that's why I say I was very surprised about the nomination because 
there is so many of us that work together to make these things come off. And when you arrive with a you know truck full of hay, I mean, the, the sights you must see, you know, tears in the eyes, people basically overjoyed too. It, yeah, they are. And, they, and people are always like, you know, oh, we don't need it. There's always some, you know, you always think there is somebody worse off, especially in rural Australia. I think everyone helps each other out. And um, what we did by starting doing the hay runs was paying it forward um, for myself because we'd been through drought. And this was my way to help out somebody else. And it's just continued. And I think, yeah, you know, there's a whole heap of people that got a lot out of it and have paid it forward. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? You always thinking about the future when you're farming and you know uh, I'm doing okay now but I could be doing it tough yeah definitely definitely you never know what's around the corner do you we've just had I think our longest harvest on record we were sort of going for nearly 90 days or something because it just yeah it's just been a shocker like everybody else across Australia I think so uh, yeah thankfully it's over now so you, you had it too wet there too did you not too wet like you guys, um, but just, yeah, we're sort of, yeah, you know, dry land farmers as well. And um, it, we're just not used to, you know, not getting going until late in the afternoon. And then the moisture comes in again and having rain and it's just been crazy. So, yeah. But in other parts of WA, they had a bumper season, like records. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's been, um, yeah, the northern wheat belt and all that's been really good. Um yeah, so, no, it has, you know, we, we ended up with sort of an average year. Um, yeah, we had, we, we sort of get hit by a fair bit of frost and we thought we had escaped it, but we hadn't. Um, just an average year for us. And so you not haven't closed the door on maybe making another trip over to helping out with the flooding? No, def- definitely not. We're always open if people, you know, if someone needs help, um, yeah, we're always ready to go we've always got guys that you know if we say we're organizing something but they will be there um they will show up with bells on so um yeah we have sort of talked to a few people um obviously you know the price of diesel is going to really not help um at the moment but we have got access to to feed if we need it and if we are you know if people do need us to come over um yeah we are able to do that or, Mm. or get it organized i should say um, like I said, if we can um, and if we are needed, we will definitely um, make the effort to get there. So how does it work? So you get donated hay and you get donated fuel too, do you? Um, yeah, well, we we have been bailing um, straw for the last few years because trying to get hold of hay was very difficult. Um, and so I'm in the Esperance region um, and the farmers here have been really uh, supportive. And so we've bailed barley, we have bailed barley straw um over the last few years um because we were going into drought areas it was you know still sustainable like it was good fodder for the for the livestock um but we also now we have um striped up a partnership with um, somebody else to they have provided us with some oat and hay uh, for the last couple of runs that we've done in wa we did a fire one um in february last year and we've done a couple of drought ones up to the northern regions of wa um so we can, yeah, we can get a balance of hay and straw, um, and then we just source money for fund, uh, for fuel. So um, last time when we came over to New South Wales, the, the New South Wales government did actually help pay for that cause we went through Lions Need for Feed and got funding that way. Um, and then, like, with our, um, the way we work with, with, with Jeep as well, we got a lot of sponsorship and, well, a lot of 
media, uh, which, yeah, we got sponsorship or people, you know, donated to help pay for the fuel. Well, congratulations, and uh, maybe we'll see you on a podium one day on Australia Day. Yeah. <laughs> Getting a medal. <laughs> oh, oh, geez, no. No, I think there's a lot more worthy people than me, that's for sure, but no, thank you. <laughs> Sam Stasevich is president of Farmers Across Borders and she's also been nominated for a Community Leader Award in Esperance in WA for the Australia Day Awards. 25 minutes past 12, uh, talking about Australia Day and uh, quite often we talk about lamb and Australia Day and uh, we'll be looking at the new lamb ad shortly. Uh, in fact, uh, we're asking you to send us a text. Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four is the number to text me if you've seen or got some views about uh, the uh, new un-Australian lamb ads. Dave in Trundles texted in already. He said, I'd love to eat more lamb, but the price of a tray of lamb chops in the supermarket puts him off. You might have some thoughts about the idea of uh, that uh, tongue-in-cheek view about things being un-Australian as well. It's 25 past 12. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, let's talk about lamb and that new ad now because, uh, as we've been hearing this year, the annual campaign funded by Meat and Livestock Australia's producer levy, shows ordinary people being disappeared to a desert wasteland for any offences that are deemed to be un-Australian. Let's have a quick listen now to the ad. What are you here for? Tried to eat a meat pie with these. Don't know the words to K-San. Charged him a dollar for tomato sauce. (coughs) What is this? Where am I? Damn. How's that un-Australian? All I said was, bon appetit. Beautiful day. Lamb. Doesn't get any better than this. I'm Graeme Yardy, and I'm the domestic market manager for Meat and Livestock Australia. The idea behind the ad really is, you know, lamb, it's such a fantastic meat. It's the only meat that really brings people together. And we know that, you know, obviously the aroma and the taste, and it's hard to resist the smell of lamb when it's cooking in a house. And we know that it's such a great sharing thing. It really does bring people together. And every year we we look for something topical, but we also think about, well, what are the things that are keeping people apart? And what can lamb do to to help, I guess, uh, break down those barriers? And this year we we focused on this idea about calling things un-Australian. And and what we found out was really it's got it, it's really out of hand. You know, we've obviously seen it used in politics. We've seen it used in general parlance. But we've really seen how calling something an Australian sort of is, is actually quite divisive and tries to separate us and for some way sort of say we're not worthy of the term Australian. And so I think we decided to poke fun at the ridiculousness of, of calling it and really work out that we're actually all doing things that someone could call out an Australian. And we also found out that actually a lot of people have been called un Australian for things they're doing. There's been a number of challenges for livestock producers in Australia and lamb producers with flooding and, and weather conditions. But you know, at the same time, lamb prices went up quite a lot last year too and have been hearing from consumers that are choosing uh, other types of meat just with the cost of living rising. How much do you think this ad campaign might help to get more people to choose lamb? 
Without a doubt, we're all feeling those pressures in all aspects of our lives these days. But, you know, I think where this ad comes to play is that we always set out to really remind people about why lamb is so great. And we have the best product in the world. It's, you know, amazingly produced in some of the, the best country in the in the world. And, and that quality really comes through and something that our lamb producers are, are really proud of and should be as well. Meat and Livestock Australia's domestic market manager, Graham Yardy. So what do people in the industry think about the lamb ad? Pastoralist David Farley from Narracourt in South Australia says the ads usually catch his attention. I'm probably not very social media savvy. I'm a bit unusual for a 44-year-old farmer. I'm probably not on any social media and things like that. So when I've got some spare time, I'll probably just go onto the MLA website. If I'm looking at some livestock prices, I'll just sort of see it there and go on it from there. He says prices for quality lamb have remained strong in the last six months. The demand for, I think the lamb seems to be very good and good quality lamb is really about quality seems to sell very much and that's sort of the aim, the end that we're sort of aimed at and that we sort of sell to some sort of more specialised markets and those markets don't seem to be affected much at all whereas more of our older sheep seem to be more affected like any, any coal sheep and things like that the markets really come right back. Narracourt pastoralist David Farley. Brett Gerbhardt is a butcher in South Australia's Riverland. He says he usually sees a spike in sales after the annual lamb ad airs. You know, the Sam Kakovich uh, ads that always seem to pop up just before Australia Day, everyone loves them and they are very controversial. It's great to see those ads come through and, and you always get a bit of a smile on your face because it does, it stimulates everybody's thoughts when it comes to barbecuing and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. He says more shoppers are choosing secondary cuts of lamb amid cost of living pressures. Looking back a lot of years ago, it was just a lamb roast on a Sunday um, and you know even the byproducts like lamb shanks were thrown out to the animals outside, the dogs outside and the lamb flaps. Now everybody's, you know, we can't keep up. We wish lamb had probably ten legs and instead of four because there's just not enough lamb shanks to go around because the change and the trends of people's eating habits. And, uh, and, and I guess, yeah, again, it comes down to a lot of the familiarisation with what gets put on television and how people perceive certain cuts now, which were secondary cuts, have now become very, very popular. What are some of the secondary cuts that have risen in popularity? Well, speaking of the shanks and the breast, obviously the flaps, it's a bit similar to, I know we're talking lamb, but it's very similar to when you do a breakdown of a, of a, of a beef. You know, like brisket was not so much even sought after back in those days. Now everything, everybody's into low and slow. So even the, the cuts from a lamb's chest plate can be done so well that it's almost like it, it becomes a, a gourmet product. Gourmet product, there you go, Riverland Butcher, Brett Gebhardt, uh, ending that story from Eliza Berlage and additional reporting from Elsie Adamo as well. And you can see that MLA lamb ad on the Australian lamb social pages and people sharing it all over Facebook as well. You might have some thoughts on that as well. We've already heard from David Trundle. He's saying it's uh, too expensive today. He'd like to buy more lamb, but it's too expensive in the supermarket. Uh, maybe the ad, the idea un-Australian as an idea uh, for a marketing ploy. What do you think about that one? You can send us a text. 0467 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. Well, let's uh, find out what's happening with the weather details. All eyes on the weather at uh, at the cricket, Neil Fraser, and uh, a bit of a washout this morning, and it seems all the rain is centred in the state is centred on Sydney. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Nothing much. Even the Hunter Coast isn't getting much. It yeah, looking at the radar, it's just like this yeah. ball in the yeah, centre of Sydney. Yeah. yeah, big blob over Sydney. And yeah. Been some uh, decent falls too, over 30 millimetres around Bankstown and Audley in, in three hours to 
since nine. So quite decent shower activity, and it's going to continue. There are a couple of breaks going through the SCG, but no, there's more to come. So, mm. yeah, if they do try and start, they'll get wet pretty quickly. So, Might be a draw. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, won't do <laughs> many favours, though. They're 2 nil down. So. <laughs> that's right. So I draw is better than three losses in a row. Well, that's true. But I uh, would just like to see Kawaja but, get a double century, I suppose. Yeah, that's thing. right. Mm. There will be some players at some stage. Right, right. Yeah, probably, hopefully today, but if not, then certainly tomorrow. Yeah. The trend yeah. is for those showers to head a bit further north around the Hunter Mid-North Coast for tomorrow. There's a slight chance of a thunderstorm. Most of them off the coast, off the Mid-North Coast at the moment. But for the next couple of days, uh, slight chance of a thunderstorm around mid-north coast hunter districts, but nothing much else anywhere else. And the general trend is for the showers to ease right off by Sunday. Still be one or two more on the mid-north coast and maybe northern rivers. We're still at risk of a thunderstorm, but certainly most of the state, especially inland parts, are going to remain dry right through for the next four or five days. And warming up at all? Warming up, yes. Gradually warming up, not getting too, just a little bit above average for Monday and Tuesday, but certainly a bit more warmer beyond that. There is the threat of a tropical uh, trough developing over Queensland and bringing some tropical moisture down later next week with some showers and thunderstorms and that's into the next weekend as well. So in the short term, up until about the middle of next week, apart from that coastal weather that we're getting, it's going to remain quite dry over the inland. So I guess that's, that's good news. For most parts of the yeah, state. I could probably do with a bit of a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So and so most like of the that. inland dry, you think? Oh yes, yeah, mm. yeah, dry. And not right that, and that that tropical ex tropical cyclone really not looking like bringing lots of rain to the north not, northwest. Not in the short term, no. But it, it eventually, yeah, that's what may come across the northern parts on Thursday, Friday next week. Just mm. a big build up of moisture but depending how the trough develops but this stage yeah thursday and friday and into the weekend as you further south less likely but certainly central northern parts of the state could see some of that moisture coming down and quite a lot of shower and storm activity in that mm. okay so further south so in the south generally dry you think and dry yeah and yeah yep. pretty yeah a ridge of high pressure uh, down yeah victoria is going to be pretty dry in tasmania so they They've got the benefit this high right over, or pretty close to them, and that pattern's not really changing. So high is staying well south of the continent, or over, you know, down around Tassie, easterly airstream and troughs developing, so tropical moisture, and it may just come down, but not for quite a while. Mm, okay, so we'll be watching, yeah, we'll be watching that system, because those things can change this time of the year. It's all, uh, it's not easy to forecast. Oh, that's right. No, if you get some upper-level system moving across, it can drag the moisture much further south into our part of the world. So, but this day just not looking like likely, at least for another five or six days, anyway. Okay, and then we'll have a better idea next early next week, I would imagine. That's right. Yes. All right, Neil. Thanks for that. Okay. Thanks, Michael. It's uh, coming up to twenty-four minutes to one here on the Country Hour. The Country Hour on ABC Radio, New South Wales. Got a few texts on the lamb issue. Jocks is uh, on the lamb ads. People throwing lamb shanks to the dogs like they used to. That was uh, that's definitely un-Australian and a waste of a real delicacy. Says yes, I remember that the old lamb shanks to the dogs, the old days. 
<laughs> wouldn't do that anymore. Uh, you might have some thoughts about the lamb ads and uh, the idea of, you know, marketing it as uh, marketing this idea about uh, things being un-Australian and uh, throwing in the the lamb there as a way to uh, to neutralise that debate. Uh, you might have some views on that as well. Uh, you can send us a text. 0467 is the number to text us here at the country. I've already had some uh, comments about the price that we're seeing of uh, lamb at the moment. Well, let's uh, stay with uh, weather now, though, because La Nina, well, it's set to stay in place for a while yet with some more wet weather likely over the next few months. But El Nino... Well, it's likely to rear its ugly head by the end of the year. That's the view of uh, quite a few commentators and uh, weather forecasters and climatologists, but also of Dennis Luke, who's an independent weather forecaster. He says the outlook for New South Wales is still weather than average until autumn, and then a move to neutral weather indicators over winter, and finally at the end of the year, an expected return of El Nino. But he says there's no need to panic, as the initial computer models appear to be showing this El Nino is likely to be mild uh computer modeling can be your friend most of the time but figuring out when it can be your enemy that's the issue is there good and bad news for new south wales well the answer the simple answer to that is yes there is the good news is that severe rain associated with la nina has decreased to the point where 95 percent of the rivers are less than what they were however the darling river especially around menindee showing signs of dropping down to the major level. The good thing is further south towards the border of Victoria and New South Wales, the river levels have dropped. Unfortunately, the bad news is the amount of rainfall that I'm seeing for New South Wales over the next few weeks. This is consistent with a persistent La Nina. Australia Day in New South Wales looks like a wet one. Any thoughts about, so La Nina continuing at least until the end of January and maybe a bit more, La Nina? Um, what I'm actually seeing on the computer modelling is the, um, as I've been saying for quite a while, that I've expected it to last till March. So um, the continuation of rainfall for various parts of the country, especially the east coast of Australia, still uh, consistent and persistent with um this La Nina that doesn't seem to want to go away. And I have been thinking that there possibly could be one or maybe two other um, events uh, before it disappears. And I've been feeling that for probably about six months. I'm not saying it's going away yet, but it's pretty close. And it will go down to a neutral level uh, once it finishes. Uh, And then there are early indications of uh, an El Nino reoccurring but at the moment I'm looking at the latter part of 2023 so we're, we're talking probably late spring maybe mid-summer somewhere around there oh okay so that's some had been talking about you know some of those uh, computer modeling showing autumn potentially flipping over to El Nino but you don't see that no, not really. Uh, it'll be a, a slow transition uh, from La Nina to neutral. Um, and then I think um, Mother Nature will just sort of have a rest for a while before it um, gets back into it. And even if we do get El Nino, as some people are predict- or some people are talking about now and some of the indicators are El Nino, it doesn't mean it will be super hot or super dry. 
No, not at the moment. The early indications can't give you any anything like that. So um, if I was to say what I'm looking at now in terms of what the computer modelling is giving me, it's showing um, it's showing probably on a cross from say one to ten or mild, weak or strong, something like that. It's probably more on the, the lesser scale. However, irrespective of whether we do have an, uh, an El Nino, uh, regardless of whether it's weak, uh, strong or whatever, we need to uh, clean up a lot of the places around the country because of all the growth that's taken place over the last three years. And that's one of the things that I'll be doing in the next couple of months. Yeah, that's something that the fire authorities are worried about. Yes, and I can pretty much understand them, probably not just fireys, but um, farmers as well, because there's a lot of lot of farmers that have got properties that uh, have uh, undergrowth around them. And um, this seems to be something that needs to be done uh, from the top, virtually from the Prime Minister all the way through to uh, agricultural policies and stuff like that to do burn-offs during winter. So when we get into spring and summer, and we do have, regardless of what um, severity of an El Nino, we need to deal with this now. And I think people on the land, especially, uh, even in even in uh, cities and towns, uh, you need to get in touch with your um, your politicians. As Dennis Luke, an independent weather forecaster, and uh, you can check out his forecasts on his Facebook page. It's 18 minutes to one. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Getting some texts on the uh, lamb ad, and uh, someone has texted in. Greg has texted in. From Ningen saying a couple of four-quarter chops slowly cooked is very nice. He says these are the cheapest chops he can afford, but he also says he's also very conscious of meat production's environmental impacts and animal welfare concerns. And um, Graham has texted in to say he suspects that Indigenous Australians may have something to say about what is un-Australian. That one from Graham. And you can comment on the lamb ads as well. Zero four six seven nine double two six eight four is the number to text us here at the Country Hour. Well, let's look at uh, grain now. And Western Australia's main grain handler, the CBH Group, has broken its receival record of 21.3 million tonnes, a record which was set just last season. Many growers across the state south are experiencing a particularly long, drawn-out harvest, as we heard from uh, Sam uh, Sam Stasevich uh, earlier on in Esperance. She was saying it's a very, very slow harvest, but uh, the generally across the state they're seeing above-average yields. Ben McNamara is CBH's chief executive officer, and uh, he says that there's still plenty more grain to come to hit the bins. Yeah, so I think there's probably a couple of million tonnes more out there. Um, if we go through the zones, we've got uh, Geraldton at 4 million tonnes. Uh, that's beaten last year's all-time record of 3.9. The Quinana zone's just over 10 million tonnes. That's uh, exceeded last year's all-time record of 9.4. That's just a massive effort there. Albany's at 4 million tonnes. Um, still a bit more grain to come in down there. Last year received 4.3. I think we'll go past that. And down in Esperance... We've received 3 million tonnes to date. Last year's all-time record was 3.7. And, yeah, I think there's a bit more grain coming through in the southern parts of the state. There's a lot of grain down there in bags as well. Now, 
December was a particularly busy month for you. Two new logistical records set. You shipped over 2 million tonnes of grain and you moved over 1 million tonnes by rail. How does that stack up historically? Yeah, so the previous record, uh, all-time record, is 1.9 million tonnes set a few years back. Uh, So to do 2.2 million tonnes of shipping was an extraordinary effort by all of our frontline teams. Um, And that was really well supported by rail performance and really backs up the months of October and November, which we also did uh, monthly records of 1.2 and 1.5 million tonnes respectively. So um, fantastic effort by our frontline teams and, and also our contractors there. It's been a late harvest this year. What challenges has that posed for CBH in, I guess, managing this freight task? Yeah, I think from a grower perspective, um, they would be seeing it as a reasonably frustrating harvest, particularly those in the southern part. As you say, it got off to a to a relatively so start. There's a fair amount of wet weather that we encountered through the journey. There's a lot of canola out there, which was also slow going as well. That actually pre- presented an opportunity for the cooperative to get uh, more tonnes or more of that carryover from last year out, and that benefited us in the month of October where I said we shipped 1.2 million. We also benefited significantly out of our rail performance, and what we've seen over the last six months is month-on-month records um, culminating in that 1 million tonnes of, uh, of rail uh, during the month of December, which exceeds roughly 900,000 tonnes of previous records. So um, rail performance has been going really well. This is not by chance. It's, uh, it's through the, uh, the hard work of our frontline teams and also our rail partner in Horizon. So we've brought on three additional uh, fleets. Um, we've seen an improvement in the maintenance performance with least additional rolling stock, including locomotives. And as growers are aware, we're also seeking to acquire more rolling stock as we move forward. That's two very big years in a row. How much carryover are you expecting uh, into this next year? Because already growers are starting to to plan their programs for the 2023 crop. Yeah, so it's a remarkable effort by growers to go back to back with uh, this magnitude of crops. So 21.3 last year, and as I said, we're going to be well in excess of that this year. Um, So going into this harvest, um, by the time really harvest got going, we had the carryover in the mid two millions. So from from last year's crop. Uh, this time next year, we expect that we'll have a, a much larger carryover position, larger than probably it's been historically. Um, but really, the carryover number will depend on our logistical performance, and we're setting ourselves up for success, as you've just heard. Uh, so we're working really hard to get that number as low as possible. But yes, it will be higher than what it's probably been historically. Okay. What challenge does that pose for CBH? Well, I think it's uh, it's multifaceted. Um, it'll pre- present challenges from a marketing and trading perspective. Uh, it'll present a challenge from a storage perspective as well. So we're already working on our plans to address that as we move forward as well. I think uh, given the wet summer that we've had to date as well, I think growers are probably reasonably well set up and, and we're mindful of uh, of that. But it's very early days at this point in time. Just finally, global shipping, it just continues to be a major constraint for exporters around the world. Have you been able to secure enough ships to move the 2022 crop so far? And just how much of a challenge has that been for CBH in coordinating this massive freight task this year? Yeah, well, I think uh, if we go back to the early to mid part of uh, the 22 calendar year, yes, there were significant challenges, particularly with COVID. 
But as we uh, come the other side of that, I think uh, we're starting to see the benefits of, of our um, strategies um, taking taking place. Just to give people a, an example, we're well over 1.5 million tonnes of, of shipping ahead of where we were at this point in time last year. And I think uh, that probably demonstrates that the ships are probably the challenge right now. What we need to do is get more grain to our ports. That's why rail performance is important. That's why working proactively with our road contractors, leveraging grower trucks is uh, is so important and supporting our frontline teams to ensure that uh, that we can complete this task sustainably as we move forward. At CBH Group CEO Ben McNamara speaking there to Jessica Hayes about uh, what was, uh, again, another receivable record, 21.3 million tonnes, still a couple of million tonnes to go, but uh, they've already broken the record uh, which was set last season. As I said, uh, more coming in uh, to the receivable sites, uh, so likely that record likely to go higher. They've had certainly had a bumper year in WA this year unlike what we're seeing here in New South Wales with the flooding. Uh, we're getting a few more texts about uh, the, uh, the... Well, first of all, about the cricket. Brendan says, um, good to hear the country are back on the wireless. He says it beats the cricket any day. Well, good on you, Brendan. Thanks for that. Uh, and uh, also Mark has texted in to say uh, he'd like to comment on the use of un-Australian being used as an advertising gimmick, but he says uh, he's afraid that uh, what he'd have to say would also be interpreted as un-Australian. So he's saying Happy New Year and cheers. That one from Mark. So uh, you can always send us a text. As I said, send us a text about uh, the uh, lamb ads uh, or any comments on any of the other stories. You might want to talk about El Nino, La Nina. 0467922684 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. It's 10 to 1. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. We were talking about uh, the uh, ports and the uh, wheat harvest at WA uh, just a few moments ago. The stevedoring company Patrick Terminals have advised importers and exporters that fees at container ports around the country will go up in six months. The ACCC has previously described the profits being made by stevedores as excessive and they contribute to skyrocketing costs for the trade during the pandemic as well, they say. Paul's ally is from the Freight Alliance, which represents importers and exporters, and Paul says that the stevedores should be passing on their costs to the shipping lines, not to his members. Look, it doesn't come as a surprise. It's been a consistent pattern now amongst um, all of the Australian stevedores. Um, they take it in turns to come out with an announcement and increase these terminal access charges. So, um, yeah, it was quite predictable. Um, and, uh, yeah, they've given us six months' notice for some more increases. So what's going up in particular and by how much? Okay, so we've got their terminal access charges, which is the fee that's paid by uh, transport operators, both road and rail. Uh, full increase in import containers, increasing in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane, uh, by just under 10%. The terminal access charges for full exports in those uh, ports will increase by significantly more, between about 17 and 33%. Um, so that alone is a, is a huge charge. Um, in Fremantle, we've got a similar thing again, uh, a lesser amount than the East Coast, but their increase is by about 6%. Um, and again, uh, 
extra fees, vehicle booking system fees, they're rising by about uh, seven, uh, sorry, nine to ten percent, and uh, in Fremantle. Uh, a significant increase on that of about 30%. So look, all up, we're estimating that these um, terminal access charge and auxiliary fees charged by the stevedores across the board, plus the empty container parks where importers have to return containers, is costing industry in excess of about $500 million a year. And the ACCC had a look at this a little while ago and said that they thought the stevedores' profits were excessive during the pandemic, but uh, has that made any difference? The ACCC sort of coming out and saying, hang on a minute, fellas? Yeah, look, it, it hasn't made any difference. I think the the thing that will make a difference, hopefully, is, um, is the federal government's response to the Productivity Commission's review. So the Productivity Commission uh, last year came out with a draft report um, in terms of their inquiry on Australia's maritime logistics system. They recommended uh, a move away from any type of regulation to try and manage the ongoing increases by by instead putting in some other form of regulation which would stop the stevedores charging this fee at all. Um, and if they need to recover their costs, whether it be increased rent, energy costs, labour costs, whatever, uh, like any other commercial entity, they would have to negotiate with their commercial client, which is the shipping line, um, and pass on costs through there. And then in turn, if the shipping line is in a position where they have to pass it on or they do so in negotiations with um, importers, exporters and freight forwarding companies. But what's wrong so, with them charging uh, you know, importers and exporters on the land side some some fees? Because they're, they're arguing that they've been upgrading their facilities there. They've got an automatic truck handling project in a couple of ports. They've been building a, a large number of straddle carriers in, in various ports. So... So th- those kind of capital upgrades do require some some mechanism to recoup the costs. Uh, it's, isn't, isn't it reasonable to be to be paying something? Yeah, look, uh, and we 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 support uh, what Patrick's doing and and other stevedores around the country. We really do need that infrastructure in place for them to to generate ongoing efficiencies. You would imagine um, these types of investments would generate efficiencies, but look, our argument is again identical to that of the Productivity Commission, um, every business is facing ongoing costs. Every business will look to invest in infrastructure or other equipment to improve efficiency. And any other business would have to either absorb those costs or pass it on to their commercial client in negotiated contracts. In this situation, the stevedores are in a position where they don't want to go back to their commercial client, the shipping lines, because the shipping lines have got the upper hand on them. But it's a lot easier to impose a fee on a third party, being a road or rail operator that has no ability to negotiate price or influence service. They're a pure price taker. Um, And again, they pass on this cost with an admin fee as well, which I don't really blame them for because there's cash flow implications there in administration. But an already high fee, by the time it passes down the supply chain, to an importer exporter is further inflated again. So it's going to increase the charge for you know the cost of, of containers coming in and out of the country. But those costs have come down a lot, haven't they, since the peak of the pandemic? They have. So that's been the good news. Um, the, the freight charges have come down significantly, particularly on imports. Um, and that's, that's welcome relief. Um, 
But, you know, it just further exacerbates this issue of the terminal access charges. It just becomes a higher proportion of your overall freight costs. Um, so what we're really hopeful for is that the government does take on this particular recommendation and others from the Productivity Commission, and that complementing with a bit of easing in congestion and um, more efficiency in international shipping should potentially in the new year be a good news story for our exporters and importers that they can actually see a bit of relief across the whole process. So some kind of government intervention or regulation that that eases, you know, that, that, that adjusts the balance of power between the stevedores and, and the landside operators? Yeah, look, exactly. And again, we, we don't want to get... At the moment, there's voluntary measures in place that have been administered by the Victorian government and now recommended um, uh, at a national level where you know we have an opportunity to provide comment and try and negotiate um, but it's really a futile exercise you know we we've never received sufficient detail from the stevedores to give us a level of comfort that um, that the costs are justified and again i don't blame the stevedores they shouldn't have to open up their books to us what they should do is again in commercial negotiations work with the shipping lines and pass on that price to them. Uh, and again, then the shipping lines can, can negotiate with others in the supply chain, and that's the process that should be in place. Paul's ally from the Freight Alliance speaking there with David Clawton, and the ABC has contacted Patrick's uh, Patrick Terminals for a comment as well. It's uh, two minutes to one. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Before we go to markets, a reminder that there's $70,000 worth of New South Wales Farmers Association e-gift cards for primary producers affected by the flooding and severe weather in February and March of 2022 that remains unclaimed from our $110,000 small gift program. The primary producers in uh, 26 areas in the uh, local government areas across northern New South Wales are eligible for these $200 cards. They include along the coast from Port Tweed, uh, from Port Stephens rather to the Tweed, uh, inland to Tenterfield, Glenninus 7, uh, Armidale, Maitland, Singleton, uh, the Upper Hunter and the Musselbrook local government areas. Uh, so uh, those gift cards, $70,000 uh, $200 a pop. Uh, there's $70,000 still available for those people that were affected by those fl- that flooding and severe weather in February of March of 2022. That money still remains unclaimed. Let's uh, go to markets now. And Griffith Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Only a small offering of just under 2,000 lambs were penned. The quality was mixed with some very good extra heavy lambs. Heavy in trade lambs were limited and there were a few stores. Not all the usual buyers returned for the first sale and there was a good supply of supplementary fed extra heavy lambs which remained close to firm. Store lambs reached $120, the few medium and heavy trades $158 to $174 to average $720 cents, heavy lambs $188 to $214, the supplementary fed extra heavy lambs $225 to $250 and they average $735. Heavy export hoggets $142 to $160, mutton numbers were low and mostly merinos were penned, heavy weights with a skin $124 to $140, the few medium weights $100 to $115 and this has been Graham Richard. 